podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome back to The Racket Report, the podcast that takes you inside the world of organized crime. Well, we have a real treat for you. We have one of the best-known former mafia members in the entire country. He was one of the most successful mafia captains in all of New York for a long time. These days, he's one of the most successful podcasters, authors, and filmmakers in the entire country. And more important than that... He has helped a lot of folks as a motivational speaker. Now, by way of background, I first started covering mob cases and commenting on mob cases about 17 years ago when I was covering the first trial of John Gotti Jr. Now, John Gotti Jr. in that trial was doing a very novel defense. At least at that time, it was novel. It's since been utilized by a lot of other people successfully and unsuccessfully in a number of high-profile racketeering cases. The defense in the John Gotti Jr. trial back in 2005 wasn't that he was never in the mob. It was that he was in the mob, but that he had withdrawn. And to me, the weakest part of the government's case in that trial and the way they tried to rebut this whole withdrawal defense was they said, no, 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 you can't leave organized crime. You can't leave unless you become a cooperator, a rat, or you're dead. And to me, even not having a great deal of experience at the time covering this stuff, that made no sense. You mean to tell me there's a criminal enterprise and a whole bunch of criminals are going to say to you, wait a minute, you have to still come back here and commit crimes so that we we don't get to take your share of the money of criminal proceeds. Well, that got me uh, researching a whole rabbit hole of people who have supposedly and actually left organized crime. And it's true. Most of the people that have genuinely left the world of organized crime have done so by becoming cooperating witnesses. But there has there is nobody that has a story like Michael Franzese. Michael Franzese was not only a mafia prodigy, if there is such a thing, but he was the son of one of the most influential, high-ranking members of the mafia in the entire country. John Sonny Franzisi, who rose to the ranks of becoming the underboss of the Colombo crime family. And for a lot of that time, the actual boss was in prison. So for all intents and purposes, he was the boss of the Colombo crime family. And over the last couple of decades, Michael has had an incredible journey, which we're going to hear about now. Michael, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Well, Frankie, thanks for having me. And you know, it's amazing that you, you opened up talking about John Gotti Jr.'s trial and the fact that his defense was that he was leaving the mob. You may not know this, but during the trial, his lawyers, who I knew, reached out to me and they said, Michael, our defense is that John is no longer in the, in the life. And the government is saying exactly what you said, that that's impossible. You can't walk away. We need you to come in as a witness because you've done it successfully for all of these years. You haven't entered the program. You haven't cooperated. And my response was, listen, I'm on good terms with the government now, meaning they've left me alone. 
Um, I'm certain this will get upset. This will get them upset with me. However, however, um, it's the truth. And if you need me, uh, call me and I'll come in as a witness. Well, they said, well, first, we're going to take an affidavit from you, Mike. And if we think we need you to appear on the stand, uh, we'll call you. But if not, we're going to use your affidavit. I gave me affidavit. Uh, they called me at some point and said, Michael, we think we're in good shape with this uh, case. And we're not going to call you to the stand. But thanks so much for the affidavit. And that's how we uh, that's how that happened. So it's it's amazing that you started off with that story. Well, I, I remember, I think you and I were actually on Fox News back in 2009 during the fourth trial of uh, John Gotti Jr. And you basically uh, said the same thing about your relationship with your father that John was claiming in, in that trial. And I uh, want to delve into a little bit your relationship with your own father and that how that informed your life decisions both back in your youth and these days. For people that are unfamiliar with uh, with your dad, for better or worse, um, he if there was a Hall of Fame of organized crime figures, I'm pretty sure your dad would be one of the first people inducted into that Hall of Fame. Now, I get concerned that I work too much as it is, and I have a job where I have a reasonable expectation of coming home, and I'm not doing anything illegal, unless you call some of the bad jokes that I make on the radio illegal. What is it like growing up having a father who is not just in the mob, but whose life seems so defined by being a leader in the mob? Well, you know, Frank, in my father's case, it was even more uh, intense than that, because I don't know if you recall, I don't know how old you were during that time, but back in the 60s, you know, the government's uh, tactics against organized crime are a bit different than they are today in current days. You know, they have a lot of undercover surveillance. They have high-tech surveillance equipment, informants. It wasn't like that back in the 60s. My dad was the target of about eight or nine different agencies, from federal agencies to state and local. And every one of those cars would have, agencies rather, would have a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week, from the time I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And that's how they investigated him. That's how thoroughly and intensely, because he was... You know, for all intents and purposes, he was the John Gotti of his day in terms of media attention and limelight and all of that. So as a result of that, I love my father. I idolized him. He was a good father, a good husband to my mother. And I always saw law enforcement as the enemy. So um, and I hated them growing up for that reason, because I saw them harass my family. I had, you know, run ins with them as a kid. You know, a lot of stories I can tell you. So, you know, and then seeing the power that my father wielded, the respect that he got, it was it made a tremendous impression impression on me. And to me, you know, he was a man's man and he was somebody that I wanted to emulate, you know, growing up, not so much being a mob guy, just being a man like he was. And tell me about when you decided to become a member of the mob and pursue that life yourself. Clearly, knowing, even seeing your dad as the good guy and seeing law enforcement as the bad guy, you knew this was not going to be an easy life. Maybe you'd get respect, maybe you'd make some money, but you're constantly having to deal with treachery, both within the criminal ranks and having to deal with law enforcement. Why then, as a young guy, would you choose to pursue that? Was it just wanting to be close to your dad? Was it wanting, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, Why did you choose to pursue that life? Well, understand this. My dad didn't want this life for me. He wanted me to be a doctor. He said, son, I want you to be the first professional in the family. 
you know, I was a ball player. My interests weren't in becoming a made member of the, of the life. Uh, my interests were elsewhere. I was going to school. I was a pre-med student. Uh, I was very, you got to understand, I had this uh, emotional uh, tug of war with me because, like I said, to me, the government was the enemy. I hated them because I watched how they prosecuted my father for three trials, you know, one for murder, two for grand larceny. He was in and out of prison. I watched them harass the family. So I didn't like them, but that didn't mean I wanted to become a mob guy. What happened was my dad gets convicted after three other trials. He gets convicted on a federal case for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. Uh, he tells me straight out that he was framed. He said, Mike, I'm innocent of this, uh, these charges. I'm no bank robber. Why I believed him, he was always honest with me. But more than that, Frank, the four witnesses that testified him were all drug addicts. My father, from the time I was five years old, preached against drugs. He hated anything to do with drugs. He used to make up stories uh, about, you know, bad things that would happen to people that took drugs. So I knew he, he would have never associated with these people. So he goes to jail for a 50-year prison sentence. And Joe Colombo at that time kind of took me under his wing. He was the boss. And, you know, I met a lot of my dad's friends, and they said, Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. So I go see Dad in Leavenworth, and I, I'm, I'm 19 years old, 20 years old. And I said, Dad, I can't go to school. You're going to die in here. You're 50 years old. you got a 50-year prison sentence. The way they hate you, you're, you're going to die in here. And it was at that meeting in Leavenworth where he knew my mind was made up. And he said, look, if you're going to be on the street, then you got to do it the right way. And he proposed me for membership at that point in time. That's how it started for me. You know, I, I always tell people it wasn't my lifelong dream to mm. become a mobster. So just go back to that incident of your dad potentially getting railroaded and that conviction for a series of bank robberies. You know, that's going to strike some people as strange, that your father was a member of organized crime his whole life, but the one thing that he ends up getting convicted of, he actually wasn't guilty of. But do you think the government was aware that they were setting him up at that time? Oh, there's no question. I mean, government agents afterwards confided in me that it was a bad case and that they knew the witnesses. You know, they first fingered somebody else as the mastermind of the robberies. Mm. And then uh, when they couldn't get the sweetheart deal that they wanted, uh, it was injected into their minds that, you know, pin this on Sonny Francis. How do I know this for a fact? The wife of the primary witness uh, be, be, I befriended her at some point in time, and she drove the getaway cars. She told me straight out, your, hus your father was framed, she said, and take me to court, and I'll prove it. We gave her a lie detector test. She laid out the whole thing, how all the four witnesses got together, along with the FBI at the time, and they concocted this story. Because remember, the only evidence they had against my dad was these four witnesses' testimony that he was at one meeting one meeting when he ordered the uh, bank robberies. That was it. And he was convicted based upon that. Wow. And the jury was out for several days, but they convicted him. So it, it didn't make sense. And so many people said, you know, it wasn't my father's style to rob banks. He would never hang around with, with drug addicts. And, and look, I, I say this all the time. I was guilty of a crime that I committed. I pled guilty. I did my time. My father obviously did a lot of bad things during his time in that life. But he wasn't a bank robber. And he was framed for that case. And I'll take that to my grave. There's no question in my mind about it. 
Now, it was reported that you might have earned, when you were at the height of your earning power on the street, you were earning up to $8 million per week. Now, this is in the 1980s when $8 million was $8 million. Is that number pretty close to accurate? Could you really have been earning $8 million a week in criminal proceeds? Let me clarify that. You know, I was in the uh, I was in a business. It was a, it was a scam. We were, we were defrauding the government at, at a tax on every gallon of gasoline. We were selling at the height of my operation. We ran it for almost eight years. I had the Russian mob guys out of uh, Brighton Beach were my partners. And uh, we were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month. And we were taking down 20, 30, 40 cents a gallon, depending upon what kind of deal we made with who. So we were bringing in. The operation was bringing in eight to ten million dollars a week, and average. You know, there's weeks when we brought in six million. There's weeks we brought in twelve, thirteen, fourteen million. It all depended. So yeah, those numbers are accurate. Now, again, it didn't all go in my pocket. You know, we had a big operation. Obviously, I was paying up to my boss, to the family at that time, and you know, I had three hundred people around me. I mean, I was making a lot of money, uh, Frank, don't get me wrong, but that's what the operation was grossing Got it. on a weekly basis. Got it. I was talking with Michael Franzese. You can check out his YouTube page. It has uh, a whole bunch of subscribers, more subscribers than most podcasts in the entire world. Michael, tell me how it all came crashing down for you. How did you ultimately come to get arrested, and uh, why did you not end up spending uh, 20 years in prison, as seems standard with a lot of RICO cases? How did you get an opportunity to start a new life for yourself? Let me try to summarize. First of all, you know, throughout my time in that life, I had 18 arrests. I had seven indictments, two federal racketeering cases, uh, one state racketeering case out of Florida. Um, I went to trial five times. I had a bullseye on my back from the time I was 20 years old. That's when they started with me because of my name. And it just never ended. So along with my navigating the life itself, just being in that life, I was a major target of the government from day one. They had a, and Frank, this is all verifiable, they had a 14-agency task force Mm. that would meet in the basement of Uniondale uh, Courthouse uh, twice a month. And their sole uh, mission was to take me down and put me away forever. I'll tell you how what broke in my favor. Rudy Giuliani indicted me on a major racketeering case in 84. I was one of the first major mob guys he indicted under the RICO statute. Me and Jimmy Rotunda, we were the lead defendants. I go to trial on that. The lead witness uh, against me in that case uh, was my partner in the gas business. He turned informant. He got in trouble on an unrelated charge, turned informant. They put him on the trial in the Giuliani case. We destroy him as a witness. I get acquitted. The government was very upset. This was their star witness. They were ready to throw him out of the program because now they were indicting me on this whole gasoline racketeering case. Well, after he lost that case, I told my lawyer, and I was in jail at the time. They locked me up with no bail. I said, listen, I got some leverage. I just beat them on a big case. We destroyed their witness. Let's Mm. see if I can make a deal and cop a plea here. That's how I got this deal. I mean, I got a 10-year prison sentence. I mean, didn't let me walk away. I had a $15 million restitution, $5 million in forfeitures. And, uh, you know, I went and did eight years in prison. But that broke in my favor because had had I got convicted on a Giuliani case, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. He sure. would have given me at least 50 years. Sure. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I, 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 had, some for, mis, I had some good fortune in, in the way things broke for me.
So talk to me about your transition, your post-conviction life, to getting out of prison and not choosing to go back into the rackets, but instead uh, pursuing a new line of work. What changed in terms of your own mentality to want to go back to the way your career was headed before, maybe not towards medicine, but towards a more legitimate life than the one that had been so lucrative for you prior to your incarceration? You know, Frank, I always say we, we have defining moments in our lives. If When we look back, we see those those moments that had such an impact on us that at times it could change the course of your life. Well, I had a couple. Number one, obviously, when my father proposed me for that life, defining moment. I spent almost 20 years in that life. I had a situation, I, I don't like to talk about it too much, but it's the truth, when my dad he betrayed me in a way and he could have put me in some very serious trouble. It stuck in me because uh, I said, man, you know, my dad and I are so close. If this life can separate father and son, there's something wrong here. I saw a lot of things that I didn't think were right. Um, but I was full fledged mob guy. This was my oath. I was staying all the way. There was nothing that was going to change that. Um, but then when these Rico laws came in, I'm mm-hmm. in MCC with a lot of guys, we're all locked up and guys are turning informant left and right. Guys are going to trial. They're getting 50 years, a hundred years, 150 years. I said, I'm the youngest guy. They're going to be 300 years. If I go down on one of these cases. So all of this is coming in my head. And then what happens, you know, it culminates with, um, I meet a young girl. I was producing a movie, uh, just before they locked me up, you know, about a year before that, I fell in love with her and she was a young Christian girl. And I, you know, I said to myself, I said, listen, I'm in love with this girl. She's 20 years old. Am I going to marry her and then go to prison for the rest of my life? If Mm -hmm. I stay here, I have to make a choice. And she was the catalyst that caused me to say, okay, I'm going to try to move away from the life quietly. When I took the plea, it was part of the plan because I said, okay, look, I'll do a couple of years in prison. I'll give the government some money. I'll move out to the West Coast. When I get out of jail, I have parole and probation. I can use that as an excuse. You can't meet with anybody when you're on parole. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll forget about me. I'll live happily ever after. That was the plan. It wasn't about me, you know, doing anything spectacular or anything like that. I was quietly trying to move away. Uh, Of course, it didn't work out that way. It became a big headline. Life magazine wrote it up that I was walking away from the mob. And all of a sudden, I got a bundle of trouble with my former boss, you know, Persico. My father (coughs) supposedly went along with a contract on my life. So I had a a tough time for a number of years, um, you know, after I made that decision, both in prison because the government, you know, they saw that as an opportunity to really try to get me to turn. And they put me on diesel therapy. They locked me down for several, uh, you know, for almost three years. I had a lot of trouble in prison and then on parole. I had a very rough time. I mean, there was guys out that, you know, tried to do some things to me. I had to move around a few times. But, you know, the bottom line, Frank, I just outlasted everybody. Mm. I got very blessed, very fortunate, and uh, I just outlasted everybody. Everybody had their own problems. And the bottom line is I never put anybody in prison. Well, and they knew I wasn't hurt anybody. Yeah, and I said that all the time. I said, I'm not going to hurt anybody. It's not who I am. I'm not poop- putting people in prison. Don't worry about it. And then at one point in time, they actually called me in. They had me on the witness list against John Riggy. And you know who John was in Jersey. Sure. He's a good friend of mine. And we had a deal together. 
And uh, there was an informant that put us together on a deal that, uh, you know, we were getting tax on windows that were coming into Manhattan, every window that was installed. And, uh, you know, they brought me into Newark, New Jersey, to testify against him, and I refused. And that was it. Uh, you know, they, they put me back in prison for four years. They violated my parole when that happened. But then everybody knew this guy's not hurting anybody. Well, with, and then the heat kind of went off. With that, that in, it. with that in mind, the fact that you didn't testify against anybody, the fact that the only person that was hurt by your decision to walk away potentially was yourself with the uh, 10-year prison sentence that you got, the diesel therapy, the underworld heat, and everything else that you just referenced, I do wonder, you mentioned being part of that life for two decades. There's some familial connections. I'm imagining there's some neighborhood connections. There's some relationships that continue even after you move to the West Coast. When you make the decision to start a new chapter of your life, do you maintain social relationships with anybody that you knew, say, growing up or that you knew from uh, the mob life? Or do you do a clean break, whole new social group, whole new group of friends? Is it possible to maintain those relationships while not maintaining those activities? Well, you know, look, I, I had to be careful. I mean, my dad and I didn't speak for a number of years. He didn't understand what I was doing. Uh, you know, he was concerned, obviously. But then when he realized I wasn't testifying against anybody, and I want to make this clear because I don't, I spoke to the government. And, you know, I, and there's verifiable proof on this, but I'm, I'm not going to bring it up now. But I really manipulated the government into making them think I'm really out of this life and I'll be helpful. But then I never did. And I was very fortunate in that at the time when I started talking to the government a little bit, I knew that the strike force was being disbanded. And the lawyers that I spoke to were in, in, uh, in the government one day and in private practice the next. Hmm. And that was the end of it. Nothing ever happened. Nothing ever came of it. And I knew that I had some information. I'm going to be honest with you. I knew that the strike force was disbanding. And I, I played a little game with them, manipulated them to a degree. When they realized what I was doing, they threw me back in prison for four years. And, and that's when everybody knew, hey, this guy's not hurting anybody. It's not going to happen. So the bottom line is, I, I always said this. I can't go back to Brooklyn and say, hey, guys, I'm moving back into the neighborhood. Because that would be like I'm thumbing my nose in their face. But. I had maintained, I mean, I patched everything up with my father. You know, things were fine right until he passed away, you know, at the age of 103. You know, a couple of guys in my crew I was still friendly with, um, you know, and, and honestly, there's guys that reached out to me over the years. One, one guy said, Michael, nobody's making any money. We need you to come back here. <laughs> I, I said, you guys have got to be kidding me. I said, I'm done. It's over, you know. Um, but, you know, no, listen, I... I you know, Frank, how could I put it? I mean, you know, you could take the boy out of Brooklyn. You can't take Brooklyn out of the boy. Mm. I'm still who I was in a lot of ways. The difference is I'm not going to break the law. I'm not going to do anything I'm not supposed to do because I put my family and my God now before anything else. And I just want to try to maintain the right lifestyle at this point. And I am a person of faith. And, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. So... But I think, you know, people would accept me if I, I mean, I haven't had any trouble since that time. And 
people have reached out to me and I've been in touch with people, hello and goodbye, that kind of a thing, and and everything was fine. Uh, talking with Michael Franzese, author of best-selling author of seven books. His most recent book is Mafia Democracy, and it's all about the parallels between the way the government acts versus the way the organized crime world acts, and some of the surprising similarities. And I'm hoping we can do uh, an extended discussion about that book uh, soon. Michael, I actually heard that you're performing in Atlantic City. I don't know performing is the right word, but you're doing a, a live presentation coming up at Resorts Casino in Atlantic City, one of my favorite casinos, and a place that we uh, spent a lot of time talking about on the radio. What is this live show that you do exactly? Something tells me you're not going to be singing and dancing. <laughs> no, Frank, I don't do that. You know, it's amazing. I've been speaking now for 25 years. I, I just got back. I was two months in Europe. I had a 17-city uh, tour in the United Kingdom. And basically, I go out there and, and I, I tell them my story. I do a QA. and a um, We do a meet and greet. I get together. I answer questions from, you know, the VIPs that buy tickets. And we give them a signed book and we take photographs. And people are just very fascinated with this genre. And the fact that somebody that really lived the life can come and talk about it and 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 present the life as it really is uh is fascinating to people and i have been doing this since uh almost 25 years now since i got out of prison in 95 and it's it's amazing to me i've spoken all over the world i've been to singapore malaysia bulgaria wow. australia every city in the united states and uh, we pack them in you know and i do a lot of uh, i do a lot of church states also because you know, my story is one of faith. It was God that had the impact and influence on me and had me change my life. And, and uh, you know, sometimes I, I wonder, I said, you're right. I said, I don't sing and dance, but people are interested in real stories and they're interested in this genre. It's it's unbelievable, Frank, um, all over the world. Yeah, if, no. you would have seen the re- if you would have seen the reception I've got in the United Kingdom, it was unbelievable. Such passionate followers. I mean, people running out of pubs grabbing me to bring me in to have a drink with them. It was fascinating to me. It's very humbling. I, I will tell you this because, you know, I'm just a very fortunate guy. No, that's uh, that's terrific. It's a show uh, that I'd love to see. And if people, I'm going to actually try and see this show in November. If people want to see it, it's going to be at Resorts Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City on Saturday, November 19th. There are VIP tickets available, and you could do the meet and greet with Michael backstage after the show, and uh, which you get, as Michael mentioned, a personally autographed copy of his book, Mafia Democracy. If you're interested in tickets, you can get them at resortsac.com. That's resortsac.com. And what we're going to do, we're actually going to be giving away a pair of tickets to anybody that retweets the link to this podcast. We're going to enter you into a drawing to win uh, a pair of tickets. So if you want to retweet me at Frank Morano, you will do a drawing and you'll have the opportunity to win a pair of tickets. Michael, just going back to uh, your departure from the mob, and I won't belabor the point because I realize there's, uh, you know, you, you probably get asked about this every day. Your dad 
he stayed, by all accounts, as a member of the Colombo crime family to the day that he died. He was not just a tough guy. He was a tough guy's tough guy uh, all the way until uh, 103 or 104 years old when he passed away. And uh, it shows that you have good genes, I guess. But um, Mm -hmm. uh, what was that like for him? I understand how difficult it must have been for you to make peace with your dad after him, you know, kind of consenting to a contract on your life. But what is it like for him to make peace with you when you've repudiated his whole lifestyle and something that he's dedicated his whole life to? You know, Frank, I I will tell you this. You know, my dad and I were very close, and we shared a lot of, uh, you know, very personal moments together, especially after the fact as he got older. And... Uh, you know, there was times when my dad used to tell me, Michael, this life is full of bull, you know, and he used different wording. I'm not going to be offensive on air, but, you know, he knew he really understood the life. But the problem with my dad, and I'm going to get very personal here, is that his legacy in that life meant more than anything else to him. You know, I once had a conversation with him in prison. I said, Dad, you know, our whole family was destroyed, Dad, destroyed. And he looked at me and he said, it's not my fault. None of this is my fault. And I said, what do you mean by that? And this was after, you know, a long time after I left. He said, well, I was framed. If I wasn't framed, none of this would have happened. I said, but Dad, you weren't framed for being a doctor, a lawyer, or a priest. You were framed because we were mob guys. And, you know, I don't justify the government coming. The The government has never justified breaking the law to catch the lawbreakers. If we allow that in society, we're creating anarchy. We cannot accept that. They have enough laws, they have enough uh, arms, you know, weapons in their arsenal to come after some people legitimately. And if they do it against one, they'll do it against another when it suits them. I said, I understand that, Dad. You were framed, but you were framed because of who you were. I said, and the problem with my dad is his legacy. He wanted to be you know, die with his boots on, his legacy of being a stand-up guy meant everything to him. Okay, I get it. But in the meantime, my family was destroyed. My mother, 33 years without a husband, when she passed away, um, her the years before she died, I can only describe her relationship with my dad as ugly. Now, why? Because she blamed him for everything that sure. went wrong in our life. Because When my dad made parole after 10 years, realized he was violated five times and every time for associating with other felons. And I used to say to him, Dad, you cannot make it in New York. You must leave New York. You want to preserve the family. He wouldn't do it. So my sister dies of an overdose of drugs at the age of 27. My other brother, my younger brother, 25 years a drug addict, in and out of trouble. Um, He finally got himself in so much trouble, he cooperated with the government and testified against my dad and got him violated on his parole and then got him sent back to prison in another case at the age of 93. My other sister, 41 years old, was was not mentally stable. She dies young of cancer. And it was all because of the lifestyle. Mm. So what I and I make this clear with people, I never talk about guys in that life. I don't judge people like that. I was one of them. I just am very fortunate. But the lifestyle is a bad lifestyle because any lifestyle that does that to families is a bad lifestyle. And Frank, I don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't gone through similar hardship. So 
you got to make a choice at some point in time. Is this, you know, who comes first, your family or this life? Unfortunately, when you take that oath, the night I took the oath, they told me, hey, if your mother is dying and you're at her bedside and we call you to service, you leave your mother, you come and serve us. We're number one in your life before anything and everything. And that's what's put in your head. And for a long time, I believed that. But that's not the way life is supposed to be. It's just not. Now, I'm not saying everything we did was bad. You know, we get a rap like everything mob guys, they're all evil at heart. They're all bad. That's not true. There's a lot of good guys in that life. They really were. Um, and there was a lot of bad guys, no doubt about it. But there was a lot of good guys. It's it's Everybody is an evil, but the lifestyle is bad. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I find that people in general, not just talking about criminals, not just talking about organized crime figures, but when we, whether we're talking about politicians, uh, radio talk show hosts, movie stars, authors, there's such a, a temptation to immediately put someone into a category, good, bad, something else, when the truth is most people are multifaceted and most people have a lot of shades of gray to them. And I'm glad to hear you reiterate that about some so-called notorious organized crime figures as well. You, you mentioned the last case that your dad was convicted on, and I followed that case pretty closely. And I went to that trial uh, a bit. And that was certainly a very emotional uh, thing to watch. I can't imagine being a member of your family and needing to watch that. But the government went after him at 93 years of age. Now, in your view, did the government really need to seek an eight-year prison sentence to someone that was... Now, he outlived the prison sentence, God bless him, but did they really need to go after a 93-year-old man who was at that point no threat to everybody, to anybody for supposedly uh, being part of this extortion plot? Or was that just piggish on the government's part? Yeah, absolutely piggish. My father was, was not a threat to anyone. He had already done 30-some-odd years in prison, um, you know, he was in a wheelchair at that point in time. He was 93 years old. But, you know, Frank, look, you got to be honest. When it comes to organized crime, listen, out here in California, you can you can you can beat somebody up on the street, get arrested and go home the same day with no bail. <laughs> same thing's happening in New York. That's for sure. Now they want to give no bail for violent offenders. I had never heard anything like this in my life. You can go into a store, steal under $1,000, and you don't even get prosecuted for it. But when it comes to organized crime, forget it. You can spit on the sidewalk, and they're going to make you out to be the worst person in the world. It's just like a couple of weeks ago. There was this big arrest, you know, for guys having a poker game. Turn on your TV during the NFL, and you're going to see them talking about gambling and, and promoting people to gambling. Offer them $200 to go out and gamble. I mean, you know, the government makes demons out of out of guys for gambling and for having a poker game when they're doing it themselves and collecting the tax money. Because why? And why specifically against the mafia, Cosa Nostra? Because, you know, we keep our mouths shut. We go to trial. We hire a lawyer. We win or lose. We go to jail. And that's it. And we have big names, big names that, that get headlines. That's the facts. 
And people, you, you got to come to that realization. That's just the way it is. You've uh, you've produced a lot of successful films, documentaries, and narrative films. And your father actually was listed as the associate producer of a film about 20 years ago with James Caan called This Thing of Ours. Now, I, I saw the film. It was pretty good. Not exactly a classic, but some great actors in there. Frank Vincent was in there and a surprisingly interesting role by Chuck Zito in that film. What exactly was your father's role as an associate producer of a major motion picture like that? I'll tell you exactly what it was. The fact that my father's name was involved helped the uh, producer go out and raise the money. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. <laughs> that was it. I can imagine. That was it. I yeah, can imagine. He didn't play any active role. And, you know, and look, you know, there was people that loved to rub shoulders with my dad, too. So, I mean, I get it, you know, and he just has fun with stuff like that. He didn't put up any money. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Sure. I can imagine. Hey, speaking of movies, one of the things that I've seen you do on your YouTube channel, and if people aren't already subscribed to their your YouTube channel, they should absolutely subscribe because you do a, a ton of great content on there. And I never know what to expect. There's great interviews on there. There's great commentaries. If people People just search Michael Franzese, uh, that's F-R-A-N-Z-E-S-E, uh, they can subscribe. I'm a subscriber. But one of the things that you've done from time to time is you've reviewed different mafia-related films. In your view, of all the mafia films that you've seen or that you've encountered, what's the most realistic depiction of mob life? Okay, well, this might surprise you, but I've said this a hundred times. As a matter of fact, I became a good friend with the star of that movie as a result of that. The most realistic, and in my view, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've watched it, was the HBO Gotti movie in 1996 with Armand Asante and Anthony Quinn. It was a brilliant film. So much of the script was written from the surveillance tapes. It was very, very accurate. It was just brilliant in every aspect of that film. I mean, I, I loved it. If I had to, you know, it, it's it's probably my number one film. Wow. I, I really mean that. You know, I got to tell you, there's one Have you watched that film? Absolutely. Frank? Yeah, absolutely. And I've okay. spoken, I've interviewed Armand about it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, he and I become great friends. I, I love Armand. He's such a brilliant actor. But Anthony Quinn, if you remember the scene when he walked into the bar after he was fighting for Gotti's life, for Armand's life, when he walked into the bar, that scene gave me the chills. He was so brilliant the way he said, you know, John, you've got to play by the rules or this whole thing falls apart. It was that scene is probably the standout scene in every mob movie that I've ever seen. He was just brilliant. It was it was it was so intense and it was acted so perfectly. Um, I just loved it. So, I mean, I always put that at the top of my list. Obviously, The Godfather was brilliant. Godfather 1 and 2. But they were fictional, so I put them in a little bit different category. Sure. Goodfellas, obviously brilliant. Bronx Tale, Chaz Palminteri, I love him. He's, he's a dear friend now also. Um, you know, brilliant movie. Um, of course, uh, Donnie Brasco. I think Donnie Brasco, I think that was absolutely uh, Al Pacino's best role. He just nailed Lefty Ruggiero. The way he played it, he was so natural, just brilliant. I mean, I, I loved it. And honestly, Joe Pistone and I become good friends. I tease him. I met him one time on the street. One time he came to my car agency when I had an agency back. And we, we spoke for a couple hours, and uh, 
I said, Joe, I'm so happy that was the first and last time I ever met you on the street. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. uh, I bet. So, all right, Gotti at the top of the list, uh, Bronx Tale, Donnie Brasco, all high up there. Okay, that's a pretty good list. You mentioned The Godfather, which obviously is not based on true events. That's fiction. The big article in the New York Post last weekend, and look, I know a lot of Italian uh, families and uh, Americans of Italian descent who cringe every time uh, any mafia picture is mentioned because they believe it helps further a negative stereotype about Italians that hurts a lot of hardworking rank-and-file Italians, and it it causes them to be perceived negatively. There was an article in the New York Post last weekend that at the San Gennaro Feast this year, they're actually going to be prohibiting vendors from selling T-shirts or anything related to The Godfather or any mob movie or anything mafia-related. What's your view of having a blanket ban on vendors selling anything mafia related. Well, I'll give you a little preview. If you read my, if you watch my, uh, my next YouTube, I actually did a, a story on the San Gennaro feast. And, and I mentioned that, you know, listen, I do understand. I've lived with that. I've heard it. I do understand Italian Americans, uh, not wanting to be perceived as, as, as people in the mafia. I get it. I understand it. The mafia you know, gives them a bad name. I get it. The same way the Mexican mafia does that with the Mexicans and the Chinese with the Chinese. But it's more prominent because we, of my former life, we get all the media, all the attention, all the headlines, all the movies. So it's more prominently uh, perceived that way. Having said that, let me say this. I think it's ridiculous that you can't sell a Godfather T-shirt or Godfather paraphernalia. I mean, come on, it's part of it's part of entertainment history. It's part of our history. Uh, It was a brilliant movie, maybe maybe one of the most brilliant, if not the most brilliant movie of all times. So what's the big deal? Nobody's associating, you know, people attending the feast to being the Godfather (laughs) or or related to it. It makes no sense whatsoever. I'm sorry. I think the guy who, uh, you know, is the master went way overboard on that. And, And let me tell you this, you know. Figure this one out. When Giuliani had said that, you know, the uh, the San Gennaro feast was mafia free or mobster free, he put a master, I think, in charge of mm-hmm. it. When you do the research and you see some of the stats later, they were claiming that when the mob ran in many ways, you know, ran the feast and it was very successfully run, vendors weren't unhappy. I can tell you this right now. They paid some tribute, but the feast was jammed. People loved it. 11 days. Nobody stayed away because, you know, they knew the mob, uh, you know, had uh, influence there at all. It was a huge event. I attended it every single year, loved it. and Everybody else did, too. When he put that, Giuliani claimed that only 3% of the money that was collected was donated to a charity. And that might have been true. Might have been true. But after he put the legitimate people in and the new master, they found out that only four and a half percent were of the money was donated to charity. And the feast had shrunk. Uh, it's not anything the way it was once before. It's not as big. Uh, you know, they're moving Italian-Americans out of uh, Little Italy. I don't think there's anybody from Italian origin that were born in Italy that live in Little Italy right now. So there were some things that we did that weren't that bad. We protected our neighborhoods. We wanted that feast to thrive. We made sure that it did. And it was a great, great event. That 10 or 11 days was terrific. So, 
you know, sometimes people just go a little bit overboard. And I think in this case, you could certainly make that case. Uh, no, I, I would certainly agree with you. And, you know, one of these days we're going to have to get my colleague Rudy Giuliani, who's on our station in the afternoon, on to uh, maybe on with you at the same time. And I'm sure he'd have a, a different view of some aspects of, uh, of what you just said. But we'll leave that to Rudy. He's never n- known to hold his tongue on that one. But handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Speaking of The Godfather, one of the most common questions that I've ever gotten about any guest that I've ever interviewed is how much of what Johnny Russo says is true. Now, I've read Johnny Russo, who plays Carlo in The Godfather. I've read his book. I've interviewed him a dozen times. These days, I think he's mad at me or or is mad at the station, doesn't want to come back on. That's fine. But one of the key things that he says about how he got his role in The Godfather and how he got all these other experiences was through his relationship with Joe Colombo. Now, you mentioned Joe Colombo was a guy that looked after you after your father went to prison. and and was somewhat of a mentor to you in the world of the mafia. What can you tell folks, to the extent that you're aware, of the relationship that Johnny Russo actually had with Joe Colombo? All right, I want to be very clear on this. That was my time, my era. I never missed an Italian-American civil rights meeting at the Park Sheridan Hotel. I was on that picket line every single day. I was 12 steps away from Joe Colombo the day that... uh, Uh, that Johnson shot him. Uh, I was intimately involved in every aspect of the league. I was a captain in a league, not a captain in the life at that point, but he made me a captain in the league. I was intimately involved. Um, I never saw Johnny Russo there. Never. Not one time. I never seen him around Joe Colombo. Now that doesn't mean he didn't know him. I want to be clear. I'm saying that I never saw him and people that I spoke to that were around at that time never saw him either. That doesn't mean that Joe Colombo didn't have influence. He might have reached out in a way. Maybe a favor was done. I don't know. But I never saw him. And, you know, listen, he seems like a nice guy. But, you know, I don't know if you've seen a lot of his, his YouTube things. I mean, you can't be everything. You can't be all things to all people all the time. And I think Johnny maybe embellishes things a little bit too much. And I haven't seen him on YouTube in quite some time. I think... You know, a lot of people are are, are saying things about that. And, you know, he seems like a nice guy. I have nothing against him. Don't get me wrong. And, and, uh, you know, hopefully he doesn't take offense to what I'm saying. But uh, I I don't know. Now, listen, on the other hand, Joe Colombo certainly did have influence over that movie. Uh, He did take the word mafia out of the script. He did, um, uh, you know, threaten a, a, a lockdown of the unions at one point in time. So a lot of the things that were said about that are true. I don't know if you saw that series, The Offer. Not yet. It's on my list, but I'm told uh, it's very good. It's brilliant. It's it's tremendously well done. I at first didn't like the way they portrayed Joey in the first episode or two, 
But then it smoothed out, and, and I actually like Giamatti Rabisi played him, and I actually like the role he did. It's brilliant. Uh, you you got to watch it. You, you'll I really will. No, it's it. on my list. I'm looking forward to seeing it. But all right, so there you go. Maybe Johnny Russo was not at the scene of the Kennedy assassination and the guy that uh, <laughs> uh, that uh, that did all the other things that he claims to do in that book. Who knows? But you mentioned the Italian-American Civil Rights League. That was something that was founded by Joe Colombo uh, sort of to stand up for Americans of Italian descent, similar to what the NAACP might do or the Anti-Defamation League or a number of other groups that uh, stand up for people of different ethnicities. Did the Italian-American Civil Rights League get a bad rap because it was founded by Joe Colombo? Absolutely. And I think and, and it's obvious now the mistake that Joey made he should have stayed behind the scenes on that. Obviously he should have not been so overt. Um, it just was the wrong thing to do. I mean, you can't be a, you know, you can't be a person like Joey and be out front like that all the time. Look, longevity in that life is tied to low profile. The lower profile you have, the smarter it is. You can't be standing in front of the FBI building, you know, harassing them and, and and doing the things that we did, not when you're in a position like Joe Colombo. You just can't do it. And it, it just gave the government ammunition to say that the whole league was a farce and that there was there to make money. And, you know, Joe Colombo was using the league for his own purposes. He should have backed off. It, it was a great idea, great concept. And had he stayed out of the limelight, I think it would still be around today. Mm, mm. You know, the crime family to this day that bears his name, the Colombo crime family, it seems like more so than any of the other five families in the New York, New Jersey area, that there's a great deal of infighting. Obviously, the aspect of that that got the most attention was the Colombo crime family wars, where you had the Persico faction and the Arena faction going after one another. Why do the Columbos seem to so often be at odds with one another? You know, it's hard to say. You know, I guess you have to go, you have to blame leadership, I would say, because when you can't hold your family together, um, there's leadership issues involved. Can't blame Persico because he never, he never spent enough time out of prison to really, you know, get tight control over the family. Had he been home, I don't think we would have had that issue with arena back in 91. But um, it's just hard to say. I I don't think, you know, I I don't know. I don't think it's anything other than leadership issues. It's not the guys themselves, but, you know, strong leadership. Look, you take Carlo Gambino, you know, for 20 years, the the guy had, he, he played it very low key. He managed to stay out of prison. His family grew. He made people make money. Uh, he was the right kind of boss. And I've said this many times, you know, that's that's the way you have to do that life. If you're going to succeed, if you're going to have your family succeed and if you're going to get any kind of longevity, you got to be low key. It's hard, especially in this day and age, very difficult. But that's the only way. 
Speaking of Carmine Persico, who was just passed away not long ago and who was incarcerated for a long time and uh, was prosecuted by Giuliani, represented himself in one of those uh, racketeering trials, you alluded to the fact that he put a hit out on you or put a contract out on you because of your departure from the mob and because of what he feared was you potentially flipping. Aside from that, and I realize that might be an aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play kind of a question, what was Carmine Persico like as a person, and how did you perceive him as a leader, uh, as a boss in the mob? I like Junior. He and I were pretty tight, um, you know, up until the time. I think when I walked away, he took it more personal than anything else, you know, because he kind of took me under his wing. He gave me a lot of courtesy. Um, you know, obviously, I was he was making a lot of money um, as a result of things that I was doing, and he was the boss. He made me a captain. You know, that was that was his doing. I liked him a lot. I think he would have been a very good boss had he stayed out of prison. He wasn't greedy. I didn't perceive him to be greedy. Um, he, he listened, you know, when you had something to say. Uh, I liked him very much. He, he and I were tight. There was a story recently that he was an informer. I don't believe that for one minute about him. Not for one minute. So, And I, I stated that in a YouTube uh, you know, session that I did. Um, I liked him a lot. Why do you think people still care so much about organized crime life? Uh, There are no podcasts that I'm aware of, at least no English language podcasts about uh, Russian organized crime. Uh, I don't see people making Netflix miniseries and major motion pictures about Chinese organized crime. What is it about La Cosa Nostra, the mafia, that seems to have such a stranglehold on uh, on the consciousness of the American public? Well, I, I think it goes back to the notoriety, you know, back to the days of Al Capone, who was a very flashy, outspoken, you know, type of guy. And I think it just carried all the way through. You know, you, you got to you got to look at it this way. You know, the mafia in this country survived and prospered for over a hundred years under some very difficult conditions. So the guys. They're not stupid guys. There's a lot of smart guys. There are a lot of innovative guys and a lot of flashy guys. And, you know, power, the the power that we wielded at one time, you got to understand this, uh, Frank, you control the unions in this country. You control the country to a large degree. Why? You control the Teamsters. You got two and a half million, you know, truck drivers at your beck and call. What does a union like that represent? It represents money and pension funds, and it represents votes. What do politicians want? They want money and they want votes. And we just, we just had a way of, of carrying ourselves to where people, believe it or not, wanted to be around us. And it was a quality, it was a characteristic, I don't know, that you don't see in many other groups. You know, the Russians, you got to say, most of them came over here from Russia. And and they don't speak the same language. They they haven't blended into society like like the Italians did. And then, of course, you know, going back to, uh, you know, the earliest uh, entertainment movies about the mob. It started with the mafia, with Capone. I mean, look, um, about six or seven months ago, I was in a supermarket and at the magazine rack, there's a picture of Al Capone on a magazine. Well, the entire magazine was about Al Capone, and that's he died in the forties. What are they doing a whole magazine about Al Capone? <laughs> it you is. Know, 
it is 80 something. years later. Uh, you know, I guess on a related note, that's tied to what we're seeing now about these proliferation of mafia-related podcasts. Now, you were sort of the original. You're the genuine article. But now uh, we're seeing anybody that's uh, ever cooperated and is at liberty um, who does a – who has anything to do with organized crime, from uh, Sammy Gravano to John A. Light and everybody in between – all trying to emulate you and do some sort of a, a mafia-related podcast. What do you make of all the these people that are trying to go the Franzese route and emulate you and your podcast success? Well, you know, I guess, you know, they did see the success that I had, and, and you know, everybody's trying to capture that, and I don't blame them. I mean, listen, it's a very hot genre. They all have a story. A lot of them are legit guys, you know, and some of them now become my friends, Anthony Ruggiano and Bobby Luisi and, and, and Larry Mazza. I know all of them. They've all been in touch with me for, for different reasons. And, uh, you know, they're all trying to get their little piece of the pie. And, and listen, everybody's got to make a living, Frank. So, you know, more power to them. If they can capture some of the there's – there's a lot of uh, uh, viewers on YouTube. And, and I'll tell you this. It's the biggest platform in the world, no question about it. I mean, Frank, I, I can't tell you how many people stop me. Hey, I see on YouTube. I see on YouTube. And we're, we're approaching a million subscribers in less wow. than two years, which is, uh, you know, from what I understand, it's, it's, it's pretty good. And uh, it's amazing how people know you from YouTube. And, I, you know, I, I did YouTube by accident. The year of the pandemic, I had 43 uh, speaking dates postponed. And it was the first time in 20-some-odd years that I was home because I'm usually on the road 40 weeks out of the year, you know, weekends or whatever. So my team said to me, Mike, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't want to do anything. I want to just stay home. No, you got to do something. You know, you got to get out there. They said, why don't you start a YouTube channel? And I didn't want to do it. I said, man, I'm, I'm not into social media, and I, I really don't need to do that. They said, you got to do it. So I did it, and it just took off. I, I can't even explain it. I don't know <laughs> I don't know what happened. It just took off. And uh, so everybody is saying, hey, why not, you know, if it happened with him, why not let it happen to me? And, you know, hopefully it does. Look, you know, I look at things this way. People look at competition, they get a little nervous about it. But I remember one thing. You know, when I was in New York, I had a couple of restaurants. And if you have one restaurant on the block, you got to lure people to the restaurant. Sure, right. When you've got 10 restaurants on the street, well, everybody's <laughs> they're going to all the different restaurants and trying them out. So to me, hey, the more the, the, the more people enjoy the genre, the better it is for all of us. You know, so it's, I, it's I so funny. I was just telling somebody something similar that the other day about AM radio and how I wish a lot of the other AM talk stations in New York had better programming because once you get people on the AM dial to begin with and then they start surfing the channels, then maybe there's an opportunity for us to pick up new listeners as well, as opposed to there only being one or two decent things to listen to on AM and then they're, the people stay on Sirius or FM. And it's, it's so interesting that you say that both in the restaurant world and in the world of, of YouTube. I did notice that, uh, that you did a pretty heated uh, series of interviews with Sammy Gravano. Now, a, Sammy Gravano did less time in prison for murdering 19 people than you did for your, you know, gasoline uh, rigging scheme. What do you think of Sammy Gravano and not only his decision to flip, but sort of what he's done over the ensuing 30 years? 
Well, listen, Sammy and I have become friends. You know, we did we did have a little bit of a uh, couple of heated moments when uh, Patrick and David got us together to do that um, that sit down. But you know, uh, Sammy is old school, and you know, in many ways, he still considers himself cousin Ostra, So I get it. And uh, you know, he got Sammy is Sammy. I mean, it was really it was a funny moment in some ways. I mean, he. You know, look, I, I don't want to get into it, Frank, sure. as to what I thought, but we, we, we patched it up afterwards. And I said, Sammy, you know, we both agreed. Look, being at each other's throats is not going to accomplish anything. All you do is make fools out of yourself and people looking at us. I said, let's make believe we are Cosa Nostra. And we do need to get along because we had to get along in our former life. I said, now, aside from that, you know, listen, he's got a good family. I love his son. His son is, is just a great kid. And uh, and he, you know, he's met my family now. So Sammy's trying to do his thing. He's definitely changed. You know, he has some of his old ways, but he's trying to do the right thing. He's 75 years old. Who knows how much time he's got left? And he's trying to, you know, set himself up and, and his family and just just try to live a different life. So, I mean, I, res- I respect that. As far as what he did, again, everybody does what they do for different reasons. And, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> what could I say? I mean, that was a tough time. And. In, in our life, and a lot of guys made decisions, and they did what they did. I, I love the uh, the, and I guess maybe this is your uh, your Christian faith and playing such a role in the other aspect, every aspect of your life, with the forgive and forget, uh, turn the other cheek aspect of of how you look at at so many things. And and I am curious, and I was I was hesitant to bring this up because I didn't know if this was a little too personal, but I know at your dad's last trial. 11 years ago, your brother, you know, he played a role in the betrayal of your dad. And I'm sure that was a very trying thing for your family at the time. I'm curious, have you and your brother been able to patch things up since then? Well, Frank, I hadn't spoken to my brother for ever since that time. And before that, even Uh, he actually called me once or twice after that. And he told me after the trial, my dad went in, he told me, now, he was still in a program, so I didn't know where he was. I didn't want him to tell me where he was. But he said, Mike, I feel horrible about what I did. I said, well, you know, maybe you can do something to help get out. Dad, get out, because there's a good chance he can die in prison. He's in his 90s. Um, and then I didn't hear from him anymore. And then uh, it was my 70th birthday last year, and my wife threw a party for me, and she invited him. And that's the first time I had seen him since before he went into the program and it was extremely emotional. We patched, you know, we patched it up. I mean, obviously I do forgive him. He's my kid brother, but you know what, Frank, if you listen to my brother and understand some of the things that he went through growing up in our household, which was extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And some of the issues that he had with my dad, I'm not justifying what he did. You know, it's very easy. People comment and they say, this guy's a rat and that guy's a rat. But until you walk in someone's shoes, it's very hard sometimes to, to comment on what they did. And I understand what he did. I still don't agree with it. And I've told him that. I said, John, I don't agree with you. But I understand where you're coming from because I know you. You know, you are my kid brother. I can't tell you how much trouble, you know, we went through as a family and, and me personally, because honestly, Frank, if it wasn't for me and my father, my brother would have been killed 17 times. Right. I mean, the things that he got away with. 
But it's still my kid brother. Yes, I've forgiven him. You know, I want him to be part of the family. And um, and he's doing extremely well. I mean, he's been clean now for 19 years. When I say well, it's sad because he lives alone. And he's running a couple of uh, drug rehab centers now. Uh, he's really in tune with that life and helping people because of what he went through all his life. So, and yes, I forgive him. There's there's no question in my mind. I mean, I forgive him. Well, that's great. And I think that should be a lesson to uh, everybody who may be holding on to uh, old grudges, no matter how important they seem at the time. Michael, I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person in uh, November in Atlantic City. If people do want to see that uh, that uh, that show in, at Resorts in Atlantic City, they can get tickets at resortsac.com. You can check out Michael Franzese and his YouTube channel to search Michael Franzese and subscribe. Michael, I hope we can do this again soon. This has been a, a real treat. No, we will, Frank. And I do hope I, I see you there. And let me, let me tell you, I've been speaking to audiences now for such a long time. We have a great time on those evenings. The Q&A is a blast. I mean, people ask me anything that they want and, and we get into a lot of stuff. And then, you know, the VIP, uh, you know, the meet and greets are great. We just, we have a good time. People enjoy it. So I hope you do make it. And, Whoever, uh, you know, wants to visit me that night, we welcome you, and I, I know you'll have an enjoyable evening. That, that's great. We may get you over to the craps table afterwards, too. Maybe you can uh, <laughs> for other oh, bring back some old habits, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Not too many. Michael Franzese, thank you so much. All right, Frank. Thanks. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. If somebody emailed you this podcast or uh, shared it on social media, do us a favor and subscribe. Subscribe to the Racket Report uh, on any podcast platform. Do us a solid and share it so that other people can hear this interview as well. And until the next time we meet in cyberspace... I'll see you on the radio.